Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. Today we have the pleasure of welcoming a very special guest to the show, psychotherapist and New York Times bestselling author Lori Gottlieb. Lori is the author of the fantastic book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, A Therapist, Her Therapist, and Our Lives Revealed. It's made most every bestseller list, won praise from Ariana Huffington, Katie Couric, and People Magazine, and is currently being adapted as a television series with Ava Longoria. She also writes The Atlantic's weekly Dear Therapist advice column and contributes regularly to The New York Times and many other publications. She's a TED speaker, a member of the Advisory Council for Bring Change to Mind, and advisor to the Aspen Institute. She also has appeared on the Today Show, Good Morning America, CNN, and NPR's Fresh Air. Lori, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. How are you doing? Oh, my pleasure. So nice to be here. Yeah, we're really glad that you're doing this and that you're taking the time. I just want to start by saying that personally, I've read the entire book with a lot of detail, and it's rapidly become one of my favorite ones in this territory. I really appreciate the work that you've done to demystify a lot of these topics and popularize them and make uh, access to therapy feel more accessible to so many people. To give a little bit of kind of context to people who may or may not have read the book yet, as the subtitle suggests, it explores your personal journey as a therapist who enters therapy for something, at the time it was a breakup, that appears to be a pretty acute problem, but is eventually revealed to have deeper roots. And then through your work with various clients through the course of the book, those kind of deeper roots are explored both in their lives and in your own. And this kind of points to one of the themes inside of the book, which is sometimes the ways in which we can see other people clearly, but have a much harder time seeing ourselves equally as clearly. And I was wondering if you could start by speaking to that. Yeah, that's such a great point. And I think you see that with every single person I write about in the book, including myself. It's so much easier to see other people in a way that we can't see ourselves. And I think that one of the main goals of therapy is for us to hold up a mirror to our patients and to help them to see themselves in a way that they aren't willing or able to see themselves. Because I think we all have blind spots. And, and what happens is we have these patterns that are you know, kind of controlling our lives. And if we can point out, hey, here's something you don't see about how you're interacting in this situation. Here's something that you're not aware of in terms of what you're contributing to the problem. And that's not blaming somebody. It's saying you have choices. And I think so many times people come to therapy and they feel trapped. They feel like they don't have any choices. And when we realize that there are things that we can do differently, all of a sudden, the number of choices and the number of ways that we can get through our struggles opens up. Well, that's really great. I was, I was thinking about you as a therapist at the point that you went back into therapy. And at that point, you were really a seasoned practitioner. And I just kind of wonder what it was like for you to sit in the client chair, I'll, I'll use the word client, and to go back and forth from, let's say, your own experience in the moment with the intimacy that you so beautifully reveal in the book, while at the same time, maybe having a little bit of sort of bird's eye view awareness, watching your therapist and how he was dealing with you and maybe even thinking to yourself from time to time, huh, that was really good. Or 
whoa, that was really lame. I would have done that better myself. (laughs) I just wondered how that was for you. Yeah. You know, I think that everybody, whether you're a therapist or not, comes into therapy at the very beginning. There's sort of a performative aspect to it. And I mean that that Mm -hmm. we want the therapist to have a good impression of us. We want the therapist to like us, respect us, validate our side of the story or our version of the story. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm a therapist and I'm also a human. And I say at the beginning of the book that my greatest credential is that I'm a card-carrying member of the human race. And so when I go to therapy, you know, I have all of the same concerns about how I'm going to be perceived by my therapist that anybody does. But I think it's doubly so because I'm a therapist. And I think that I want to appear even more together than the average mm-hmm, person mm-hmm, does. Mm-hmm, right. You know, and so there's there's that going on. And I very much go because... I want him to to validate my version of the story that I feel like yeah. that's going to make me feel better when of course it's not. What I really need is for him to say, here was your role in the story so that I don't repeat that, so that I understand more about how I contributed to ending up in the situation that I ended up in. And I think there's the other part of it, which is you're right, that sometimes there's a tendency to backseat drive to say, mm-hmm. you know, wow, I never would have said that in that way to, uh, you know, a client. Um, but you have to let your therapist do the work that he or she is doing in the way that they do it. One of the things that you're alluding to here is this great distinction that you make very early on in the book, which is the difference between the kind of presenting problem, what you feel like you walked into the room for, and maybe the deeper material that underlies that presenting problem where you very much early on in the story kind of walk into the book saying, okay, this is, a, this is an acute disaster. I just got into a, a metaphorically a car crash, a psycho-emotional car crash, and I just need some kind of quick fixes and then I'll be, I'll be back, I'll be healthy again. And it turns out that the issues that you were dealing with were, were much more kind of longstanding, pernicious, and underlying a lot of the situations that you were in at that point in time. And... I'm wondering if you could kind of speak to the difference between that presenting problem and the deeper roots and how maybe somebody can go through a process either by themselves or with another person of identifying the aspects in their life that have that kind of surface level versus the aspects that are based on kind of more developmental history or deeper problems or whatever it might be underneath that. I like to say that when somebody comes into therapy, I'm listening to the music under the lyrics. So the lyrics are the presenting problem. The lyrics are, I'm here because of a breakup. I'm here because of a problem in my marriage. I'm here because of a problem at work, whatever it is. And I think that often what happens is what I'm listening for is what is the underlying struggle or pattern that got you into the place that you are today? And I want to know not just why they're there now, but why this week, did you call me? Maybe this problem was, you know, had been going on for a while, but why now? So I'm, I'm scanning for sort of what is the underlying pattern or struggle, but I'm also scanning for strengths. What made them call now? That's a sign of strength. Mm. Where are they that made them want to talk about this now? Because I think that even though people think they're coming in for the presenting problem, I think they know that something bigger might've gotten them on this path. Mm. What do you think can help people themselves, especially people not in therapy, to be more aware of the music inside themselves that's underneath their own lyrics? In other words, the deeper, younger layers. I think that one of the things that prevents us from doing that with ourselves is shame. 
So mm. many times I think that we feel like we can't go there with ourselves because we're going to feel badly about ourselves. We're going to feel shame. I think we're going to be very judgmental of ourselves. I think one of the things I notice about people so often is how unkind they are to themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, you would never, the voices in our head, you would never talk that way to a friend if a friend presented you with the same problem. And so if we can get past the shame and the judgment when we try to self-reflect, if we can, you know, be really compassionate with ourselves, I think that it's much easier for us to look at what else might be going on besides just the one-liner of, you know, the problem that they're presenting. Yeah, that's very touching and completely consistent with my own personal experience just as a human. So let's suppose that a person does feel more resourced. You know, they are able to be kinder with themselves, more compassionate with themselves, less less immediately ashamed of what they might reveal when if they uncover things. At that point, what do you find are some clues that people can use on their own to be aware that there's some kind of deeper undertow, there's some sort of deeper beast, you know, in the basement that uh, is affecting them these days? Yeah, I think they can ask themselves if they've ever felt this way before. When have they ever felt this way before? Has this circumstance ever presented itself maybe looking a little bit different with different people? But it's kind of like, you know, that saying, if a fight breaks out in every bar you're going to, it might be you. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so, for sure. so if you're saying like, you know, I'm having these, these relational difficulties in this situation, but I've also had them in these other situations. And I think people stop right there because of the shame, because they feel like, oh, the problem is me. No, but the problem was also them. And it's, both are true. The problem might've been the other person, but what were you doing in that situation also? And I think that, that that's the thing is to say, what, where has this happened before? Does this look familiar? Does this sound familiar? Yeah, absolutely. And what we're kind of orbiting here, the phrase that we're kind of orbiting here, which you use in the book, is Freud's repetition compulsion, our kind of desire to return to circumstances that were problematic in our past so that we can heal those old wounds and overcome them. But uh, Rick's actually had a great line on a previous episode of the podcast, which is that if you're trying to get blood from a stone, you're going to be with a lot of stones. You're going to be squeezing <laughs> a lot of stones. And over time, your head's going to hurt pretty bad. Um, so in your work with people, whether it was your own work therapeutically with Wendell, or it was your work with the various clients in the book, or it was just your work as a therapist most broadly, what have you seen in terms of different people's ability to exit that repetition cycle? And what are some of the things that people can do to kind of improve their chances of being able to do that successfully? So. I think that every single person, you know, in the book, I follow four patients and I'm the fifth patient. So there's five people that we're following because I go into therapy too. And every single person, I think, struggles with repetition compulsion. I think they struggle with this kind of something that's running the scenes, I mean, like pulling the strings behind the scenes. And Wizard of Oz, yeah. Yes. And so, you know, the, in the book, there's this woman, Charlotte, and she's in her 20s and she keeps dating these guys who are disappointing her. And she thinks, you know, oh, it's men. Men are like this. And she doesn't realize that she keeps going after the same kind of guy. At one point, she even starts hooking up with a guy from the waiting room and she says, well, at least it's a step up because he's in therapy, you know, so, so she thinks he's <laughs> self-reflective. But of course, he then comes to therapy with his girlfriend. 
which is exactly, and I, I can smell it, you know, a mile away, but she can't. And, and I think that people think, well, you know, if, if for whatever reason, something was difficult for them in their childhoods and they feel like, well, I'm going to go for the opposite of that, even though the person might look very different from the people who raised them, there's something about that person that they're drawn to. It's kind of like they have radar for, you know, this feels familiar. This is home. And so they keep going after the same thing because they think maybe this time I'll get this person to love me. Maybe this time it will go differently. And of course it doesn't because what will make it go differently is by choosing a different kind of person. And what she eventually comes to realize, and it's not just an intellectual realization because as I say in the book, insight is the booby prize of therapy. That you can have all the insight in the world, but if you don't change the way you you navigate your life out in the world, the insight is useless. So she actually has to not only have the insight, but then she has to make different choices out in the world. And that's how we break that cycle. I just find myself wondering, I hope it's okay to ask, you spoke about issues of, let's say, shame or or other things or unkindness to ourselves that make it hard to become aware of our own depths. Did you grapple with that yourself? You seem so accomplished, so capable. Did that Uh, Were those blocks things that you had to work through in your own therapy? Oh, absolutely. One of the first things that that I say when I go in for my first session, and for context, I'm I'm with the boyfriend who you know we were planning to get married, and he announces that he's decided that he can't live with a kid under his roof for the next ten years. That kid was at the time it was he was eight years old, my son who had not been hiding in a closet the whole time we were dating. So so to me, my version of the story, and I very purposely say my version of the story, because what we come to discover is that I had a role in this too, is that this guy has wasted so much time in my life. And, and, um, and I say in this very first session with my therapist, I said, you know, now I've wasted all these years of my life and I'm in my 40s and half my life is over. And my therapist gloms onto that phrase, half my life is over. And that's what our therapy is really about. And it's about, you know, what what have I done in my life that that I want to change? You know, what have I, what are these kind of cycles that I've been in, in my life that that haven't been working for me? And there are a bunch of them that that I don't want to sort of spoil it. And I think that that's where we say, why do you keep kind of doing the same thing over and over? Why do you keep shooting yourself in the foot in the same way over and over? And and that's I think what what everyone's therapy is about. Yeah, absolutely. And kind of to speak to that in terms of you've been talking here about the time dimension to a certain extent of your problems, about problems being in the past or seem to be in the present or even be in terms of your relationship with your future, where one of the things that we really see often either in a therapeutic process or just in our own lives is that people tend to relate to problems in the present. I stubbed my toe right now. I just got into the fender brander. My current relationship is being problematic. But one of the parts of the book that I really loved and really kind of latched onto was when you expressed that problems are actually often in the past or in the future, even more so than they are in the present. And here we're talking a bit about, in terms of repetition, compulsion, things like that, more sort of developmental issues, problems from the past, returning into the present. But one of the things that you mentioned is that problems can also appear in terms of our relationship to the future, either this idea of half my life is over, or I thought I was going to marry this guy and now I'm not and here we are. I would love it if you could kind of speak to that for a moment. Right. I think that what we don't realize is that whatever's going on in the present 
we're creating a story about our future based on what's going on in the present. And if something changes in the present, that whole future that we had envisioned goes away. So when something happens like you get a divorce, now your future looks very different, right? When something happens where you have a miscarriage and you imagine this baby that you were going to have and this future you're going to have with this child, and now your future, that future has been taken away. And so how do we create a new future? We're grieving not just what happened in the present, say the miscarriage or the divorce, we're grieving the future that we now have to give up as well. Now, how that works, interestingly, I think what people don't think of is that the future is also being created in terms of if we make a positive change, say, you know, that's hard to make because we're going outside of our comfort zone, that also changes the future, meaning we're going to have to go into this place of uncertainty in the future. And humans don't like uncertainty. We don't do well with uncertainty. And so that's why people don't make changes so many times, even really positive changes, because they know they're going to have to create a different future. Even if it's a better future, it's still uncertain and unfamiliar to them. And that can be very uncomfortable for people. I think a lot about how people internalize useful experiences to become to develop resources inside. So for example, developing resources that could enable people to tolerate uncertainty better mm-hmm. and so on over time. Mm-hmm. And in your own experience with yourself, learning and growing through therapy, that's a process of internalizing and change over time that really sticks. And when you help other people internalize experiences so that they can grow and change over time, including healing wounds inside. What do you find really helps people kind of take charge in effect of their own learning process, their own growth process? I think that they need to be able to move out of their comfort zone just a little bit. Mm -hmm. That's great. To get a taste of what something might feel like that's different. I always say that most big transformations come about from the hundreds of tiny, almost imperceptible steps that we take along the way. And so they don't need to make a cataclysmic change in one step that if they can just get a little feel for what it might be like to do something different, do one thing differently this week, a little bit, and just see what happens. Mm -hmm. And those changes add up over time. And they also do what you were talking about is they build resilience. They build tolerance and they give you a different experience of how change can feel good as opposed to scary. Lori, to ask kind of a meta question here, either in the moment of doing therapy with Wendell and working through those problems with this, and you allude a bit to this in the book, but Even since then, in terms of your work with people since, how has your own therapy affected your practice with people? Oh, in so many ways. Part Mm. of it is that going to Wendell, I think when you are training to be a therapist and you're going to therapy, which we do as part of our hours for licensure, you very much feel like an intern. You know, you don't you you don't feel like a therapist yet. And and so I think you very much feel like the client. And I think what happens is once you start a practice and, and you've been doing this for a number of years and then you go back. I think that you get to see something that you don't see in your daily life, which is how another therapist practices in the moment, because you haven't seen that since grad school. And now you have a different context in which to view that. And so I learned a tremendous amount, not only about myself that I could bring to my work as a therapist, but also about just how I so admired how my therapist brought his whole personality into the room. And I don't mean that he crossed boundaries because he was very boundaried. 
But what he did was he was very human and real in the room. And I think that when you're in grad school, you think that being a therapist means presenting yourself in a certain way in the room, that you're the clinician and you're the expert. But that's not at all what it is. It's a very rich human encounter. And so I think it's just these two people in a room. Yes, we have experience, but we're also people. And I'm going to practice in a very different way than somebody else is going to practice because my personality is different. So I think that I learned to be very authentic and human and real in the room in a way that I never understood until I went to therapy with Wendell. Yeah, I think that there's something magical about therapy and sacred about it, actually. And and in the culture, it's sort of taken on this this aura. I, I watch movies or TV shows, and I'm I don't know about you, Laurie, but I'm totally fascinated with how they portray therapists, for better or for worse, right? And I think from time to time about how in hunter-gatherer times, or even when we lived in smaller groups, like my dad grew up on a ranch in North Dakota, born in 1918. I think that if we spent more time sitting around a fire with each other every night, just talking, it would put a lot of people like me or maybe you out of business. And there's a way in which what you're speaking to and, and write really so beautifully about in the book is intimacy, deep intimacy, not eroticized intimacy, but interpersonal intimacy. And I think there's a longing for it in the culture because even though we have many ways of connecting with each other, like social media, in odd kinds of ways, they distance us from each other at the same time. And I wondered if you had any takes on that or perspectives on that from your own background. I think that no matter what people are coming in for, what's behind that, what I hear so much of, and again, this is the music, not the lyrics, is this sense of loneliness that people are experiencing, the sense of isolation, even if they are in a happy marriage or they are surrounded by friends or family or they have like a really rich, full life on the outside, I think that people are craving exactly what you're talking about, which is uninterrupted time sitting face-to-face with somebody in a room um, that sadly, I think so many people are only getting in that way in therapy. And what I want people to do is to take that outside the therapy room and make that happen, create that in their own lives. So many times people, I have to tell them like, please turn off your cell phone, right? In the, in the room. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. You can go 50 minutes without it. It'll be okay. It's almost like when the session ends and it's like, you know, when an airplane lands and then everybody like whips out their cell phones. The same thing I think happens so much in therapy where so much of their lives are mediated by all of this input from other people or this output on text and they're not getting the face-to-face. So many people will say to me, like, can we just Skype because it's so much easier than coming to the office? And, and you know, a colleague of mine said that they call Skype therapy doing... Ther- it's like doing therapy with a condom on. And, yeah. and, and I, think, I think it's really an apt metaphor because... There's something about the energy in the room. There's something magical that happens when you're in the same physical space as opposed to talking to somebody through a screen. The way the sounds in the room, you can hear someone breathe, just what it feels like to sit five feet away from somebody. And so I think that there is this pervasive sense of loneliness in our culture and that, and that it is affecting our mental health. Yeah, it's really interesting that you actually mentioned that, Laurie. We recently recorded and released an episode that was dedicated to the topic of loneliness and exploring how what we can do in our own lives to increase connection with other people, how can we work with that experience inside of ourselves, and what are kind of some of the the cultural conditions and also the genetic conditions that lie inside each person. 
that uh, contribute to the experience of loneliness. So it's definitely a rich topic for both of us. So I'm really glad that you're naming it here. What I notice is that people will come in and they'll say, I've never told anyone this before. Mm-hmm. And I notice too that when men come in and say that, they'll say, I never told anyone this before. And then what they tell me, you know, I feel so much compassion for them because what they said, I feel like lots of people should have heard that. Like it wasn't, it wasn't that deep of a secret yeah, to me. Totally. And that they felt so much shame and, and, and so awkward that they couldn't be vulnerable with somebody around something like that. Women will come in and they'll say, I've never told anyone this before, except for my mother or my sister or my best friend, right? So they've told like one to three people maybe. But, <laughs> you know, it's, but for them, that feels like they've never told anyone. But, but I think the thing is that, that men especially are isolated. Men especially feel like they don't have someone that they can confide in. And I feel like we really need to change that in the culture, that that's, that's, a, that's a societal issue that men feel that way, that they really can't tell anybody something about themselves for fear that they will be judged. Do you find that men are more willing to confide in you as a woman than perhaps they would have been willing to confide in a male therapist? I don't know for sure, but I do know that there are many times when they'll say to me, I think that they they'll say that they specifically wanted to go to a female therapist because they felt like they wouldn't be as open with men. I don't know that that's true of all men, but certainly some have said that to me. Yeah, I think that it's a great exploration here. And I I can say certainly from my own experience inside of my friend group, one of the topics that's really been coming up recently has been this topic of men being able to feel like they can reach out to other people, male or female, and what we can do to kind of decondition around some of these the, the pernicious ways that the kind of assumptions of society start to kind of creep into even are very, you know, theoretically very insulated from that day-to-day lives because none of us are immune to it. And, and those conditions do really repeat themselves in small groups just as they do in the kind of super macro group of the human condition, all of the people. You know, where I see it a lot is in couples where women will say, like in, in let's say a couple where the woman will say to her male partner, I really want you to tell me how you feel. I feel like I don't, I don't, I want to know you on this deep level. And then he does, he takes this risk in therapy and he tells her and he tears up or he, or, you know, something happens where he's crying and all of a sudden she is frozen and she doesn't know how to deal with it. And she is profoundly uncomfortable and he sees her discomfort and then he clams up. So it's like, you you know, it's like we say we want one thing and yet we're so conditioned in another way to say, yes, we want this. We want you to be open. We want you to be vulnerable. And yet if you are, I'm going to feel really uncomfortable. And we need to change Mm -hmm. that. We need to make it okay that of course men, you know, and, and when men talk to me, they have this really deep well of emotion the same way that women do. And they have so many of the same anxieties, concerns, struggles around what does it mean to be a good parent, to be a good partner, to have approval of one's parents or not have approval of one's parents, to um, be successful. What does that mean, right? Um, to be loved, to how, how to love. Those are universal human concerns, but I think that we don't make room for them for men in the way that we do for women. I've thought a lot about courage. I've done a lot of things in the wilderness, in wilderness and I've also seen a lot of people in business settings and I've seen a lot of courage there, people facing challenges, facing risks, tolerating discomfort and pressing forward in, let's say, a good way. And yet interpersonal courage, particularly, I think, for men, is lacking often. 
And I've known a number of, let's just say, men who are very brave physically, and they'll take, they're very bold in business. They'll take, they'll be strong and courageous there. But when it comes to being personally vulnerable, let's say with another person, Mm. that's really hard for them. And I think not just to gender it, but beyond, let's say, men, this whole dimension of interpersonal courage is really interesting to me, including the courage to stay open to and present to, let's say if you're a woman, to your male partner who's being really vulnerable and you don't know what to do about it. Yeah, I agree. I think that, you know, this is something we're not taught growing up. You either had it modeled for you and that's how you learn it, or you didn't have it modeled for you. And yet I think that people on a deep level crave it. So I think they know they want it, but they they don't have the tools to really know how to be, just how to be present with another person in all of their vulnerability. So one of the ways that I think that people can show this this interpersonal courage and a courageousness just, you know, in in pursuit of their own well-being is actually by entering a therapeutic process with somebody is by taking that step to go to therapy. And you know, as I said toward the beginning of the podcast, one of the things that I really appreciate about the book and about the work you're doing here is around demystifying this process and about making it more feel more accessible, feel more just kind of normal, like an okay thing to do for somebody to step into that relationship with someone. But still, as you've said, you know, we have a lot of shame. We have a lot of concerns. There are many people who are not raised in a culture, you know, like I was, where therapy is for better and for worse. Yeah. My dad to shrink. (laughs) Very normalized. Very, very okay to go to therapy. I'm so sorry for us. Really. (laughs) What I I like to say, because I, you know, I have a son and what I like to say about being the child of a therapist is that, you know, the the good news is that nothing gets swept under the rug. The bad news is that you'll be totally screwed up anyway. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) No, I I think it's a great way to put it because there are, I mean, just to to take a, a right turn here for a second. I have a lot of interactions with people where, and I'm, I'm sure you you have already run into these interactions and will increasingly run into these interactions as your son ages, where they have a conversation with me of some version of, oh, your dad's a therapist. Does that mean that you're just profoundly mentally healthy now? And I'm kind of like, well, frankly, no, not really. I, I got my own problems here. But I do think that that interoception that you're talking about, that nothing gets swept under the rug, things are really kind of pulled out and looked at not in a bad way, but actually in a pretty good way. I think that you were pretty darn good about not therapizing me as a child, which I appreciate. That was a huge taboo. Wow. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. We just wouldn't do that. Yeah, That's really, I bet you were the same way, Laura. You just don't do therapy on your oh, kids. Oh, yeah, no, not at all. Yeah, you don't. I mean, you're just a parent. And, and that's a good thing. You're just a parent with your kid. And, you know, hopefully because you're a therapist, you are, you've worked out many of the things that you need to work out, but you still have other things to work out. And you, you learn, I think being a parent teaches you a lot about what, you, what work you still have to do. Yeah, that's a great point for sure. So for somebody who's interested in pursuing that process, but they have shame, they have concerns about it, they have fears, but they're of going- doing therapy. Of doing therapy, yeah. But they go, huh, you know, maybe I should talk to someone. <laughs> well, that's the title of a bestseller. Know, it's the title of a really good book. I like it. I tried to drop the light in there. It was a professional radio move. What, what advice would you want to give them? What would you kind of want to encourage them toward or, or leave them with here? Yeah, well, first I should say that the reason that I chose that title for the book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, is that I don't just mean a therapist. I think we need to talk more to mm. one another. So that's what going back to that sort of loneliness and isolation, I think we need to be talking more. And I don't mean putting an announcement on Instagram, you know, those ones that say like, 
gee, I've never been this vulnerable <laughs> before, but now I'm going to share it with all of you strangers. But you know, where we where we are actually talking to each other. And I think that a lot of people don't take the step to call a therapist because they think that they need to be in a profound crisis to go to therapy or they or there's a lot of stigma and they think well if I go to a therapist that's going to solidify you know this fear that I have that something is wrong with me and it's interesting because if something's wrong with our bodies you know with our physical health let's say you know your your something feels off in your body you're going to go to your doctor and get let's say you have chest pains you're going to get it checked out before you have a massive coronary hopefully but i think what happens is if we something feels off emotionally we feel like, well, it's not that bad. I'll just let it go. I'll just suck it up, you know, stiff upper lip. You know, I have a I have a roof over my head, so you know, how bad can it be? And what happens is the feelings don't go away just because you ignore them. In fact, the feelings become stronger because you're not giving them air. And so I think what happens is eventually people either, you know, end up having some kind of deeper struggle, you know, where it's really hard to function or they end up in therapy during a crisis, but they, they didn't have to wait that long. They didn't have to struggle all that time. And it's harder to, to work with when they are in the midst of a crisis. If you come in preventatively, right? If you come in and say, something's going on and I don't know what it is, it's going to be a lot easier for you to figure out what's going on than if you're coming in and now it's really a crisis point. When someone's in therapy, what can they do themselves to get the most out of it? I always say that in therapy, you need to be both vulnerable and accountable. And so therapy isn't about, I'm going to download the problem of the week and then I'm going to leave and that exists in its own compartmentalized place and I'm not going to do anything with what happened in the room during the week. I think that it's a very dynamic process that in the room, you're experiencing something. You're not just talking about something, but you're experiencing something in the relationship with the therapist. How do you relate to what the therapist says? What's going on in the room? I do a lot of work with people in the here and now. You know, what, what is happening between us? Because this is a microcosm of what happens between you and the people out in the world in your life. And so can you use this experience? Can you use something, a risk that you took in here? Can you use that and take a risk out there with the people in your life? And if you're using therapy in that way, you're going to see a lot of progress. I think that's great advice. So to bring this to a close, to me, uh, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone is, is really a very hopeful book. It's about how we can change and grow over time as, as people, as practitioners, as uh, humans operating in this big wide world that we have. So based on all of the growing you've done as a person through your life, through specifically this process maybe, if you could go back in time and talk to yourself, you give many stories in the book about being a 20-something and the work you were doing and your engagements uh, with it. If you could go back in time and talk to that person or maybe even somebody earlier than that back in high school as a child, what would you want to say to them? I think I would want that younger version to know that we're all so similar that, you know, one of the messages of the book is that we're all more the same than we are different. And I think so many times we think that we're the only person struggling or we're the only person who thinks this thing or feels this thing. And we're all connected. And I think that that allows you to have much more compassion for yourself. And once you develop the capacity to have more compassion for yourself, you can have more compassion for others. And once you develop the capacity to have more compassion for others, you can really connect. And once you connect, that's where the growth and the change and 
you know, I think the meaning and the fulfillment in life happen. I think that that's a, a great piece of advice. And again, Laurie, just thank you so much for taking the time to do this here. Oh, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to have this conversation with you both. So today we had the pleasure of speaking with Laurie Gottlieb. Today, we had a pretty wide-ranging conversation about therapy and some of the major themes that appear inside of the therapeutic process. Some of the things that we highlighted included the challenges that we all experience, therapists and otherwise, in seeing ourselves clearly, and how sometimes we need somebody else to be present simply to hold a mirror up to our own nature. Lori spoke for a while about how her therapeutic process personally influenced the work that she did with clients and some of the struggles that can occur in being a, a therapist, a practitioner, who once again puts on the hat of being the client. We dove into some of the big themes that tend to emerge during a therapeutic process. One of these is what's called the repetition compulsion, where we feel the need to return to familiar circumstances, even and often especially, if they were actually really problematic for us, and how exiting that compulsion is actually a major part of becoming a healthy, happy adult. We also talked a lot about developmental processes and how our problems in the present can relate very strongly to things in the past or even the future. And by changing our relationship with the past and the future, we can become more healthy, happy people in the present. Lori closed by giving some excellent advice to people who were considering therapy and shared how she felt that people could get the most out of their own therapeutic process, which really emphasized bringing the work that you do in the room out of the room. Again, the book is Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, A Therapist, Her Therapist, and Our Lives Revealed. It is a fantastic book. It's a great demystification of the therapeutic process. I am so glad that it exists. And I really hope that books like Lori's will continue to break down some of the stigmas that we have around therapy in our society and continue to make it more accessible to more different kinds of people. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to leave a positive rating and review and subscribe to it through the platform of your choice. It really does help us out. So until next time, thanks for listening.